Whether it be from a bestseller or a near-forgotten book, screen adaptations are very tricky propositions. For a popular title, woe be the filmmaker who deviates from a story worshipped by millions of readers. As for disciples of a cult novel, they are even more devout. And that's not to mention the pilgrims who gather at Comic-Con. No, whether it be The Hunger Games, Dune or Watchmen, there are legions of fans who merrily cast curses on the films that dare desecrate their sacred scriptures. But there are times when the filmmaker is left with little choice. Some content simply will not translate to the screen. Consider Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita, D.M. Thomas's The White Hotel, or John Avida Linkvist's Let the Right One In. In many ways, Let the Right One In is an unusual novel. Although belonging to the vampire genre, a genre long since ripe with themes such as religion, paganism, sexuality, feminism, xenophobia and disease, Linkfist's novel avoids much of the genre's iconography. Crucifixes, garlic, wooden stakes, bats, there aren't even any fangs. But while there is a monster, it isn't anything like the one in Myrna's Nosferatu. Another way that the novel is unusual is that it focuses on a preteen vampire named Ellie. Thanks in large part to Joss Whedon's Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the teenage vampire is commonplace now. And that strain can actually be traced back to 1872, to Sheridan Lefanu's Carmilla. But while Lefanu's novel is a thorough piece of fiction, Linkfist's 2004 novel carries strong autobiographical elements. That, and the fact that it focuses on a preteen vampire, puts Linkfist's debut novel in the same group as Anne Rice's own debut novel, Interview with the Vampire. Published in 1976, Rice reconceived the vampire myth in the wake of her losing her six-year-old daughter Michelle to leukemia. And in Rice's novel, a ten-year-old girl named Claudia is turned by the vampire Lestat. You fed on me. Yes. And he found me with you. And he cut his wrist, and he fed you from him, and you were a vampire then and have been every night thereafter. You both did it. I took your life. He gave you another one. Just as Rice wrote her novel as a way of self-therapy, so too did Lindquist draw on his own experiences. Born in 1968, he set his novel in 1981 and focused it on a 12-year-old boy, Oscar, who not only lives in the same neighbourhood, the Stockholm suburb of Blackieberry, in which Linkvist grew up, but in the very same apartment. In addition, Linkvist's unhappy childhood is echoed in the book where Oscar's father is largely absent and alcoholic. While just as young John was, Oscar is tormented by bullies in school. But while that is where the biographical tissues end, it is also where the problems of adapting the novel begin. Linkvist was afforded the privilege of adapting his own work, but since the story runs for almost 500 pages and is told in the first person from no less than seven different narrators, he faced the unenviable task of cutting his own material down to a 120-page screenplay. Which narrator do you choose? Who do you leave out? As a result, 
would fans of the best-selling, well-reviewed novel, which had been translated into 10 languages across the globe, rise up in revolt. Lindquist's initial idea was to tell the story over two separate films, which explains why his first draft ran for over 250 pages. Then director Thomas Alfredson came on board, and here is the director, explaining the rationale behind the severe contraction in the material. You have to leave something out uh, when, when you do a film, and uh, too many filmmakers really, they take a little of everything just to be uh, courteous or, or nice to the audience, and uh, you end up with, uh, with a, a lot of little of nothing, really. So we tried to emphasize on the, uh, the love story between the children, and how that developed, because the, the book is also narrate, narrated by uh, several stories, parallel stories, and uh, we made this uh, the boys' film, Oscar's film. So, while the film does contain scenes of violence, as you'd expect in a story with a central character whose only nourishment is human blood, compared to Lindqvist's novel, the film's violence, intense as it is, is relatively restrained. As the book unfolds, we learn that two children, Oscar, who is human, and Ellie, who is a vampire, are both victims of abuse. In their efforts to wrestle themselves free, we come to see the town as little more than an abattoir of such bullying, persecution and intimidation. It seems that the town's entire population either inflicts or suffers some sort of trauma. Oscar, played in the film by Corday Hedebrand, is subject to regular beatings at the hands of his schoolmates. As a consequence, he has developed a morbid interest in murders reported in the newspapers. And from there, he carries with him a knife, which he uses to stab the bark of a tree on the estate. As for the other child, Ellie, portrayed by Lena Leah Anderson, he was long ago the victim of a hideous sexual attack that left him castrated. In the two centuries since the assault, Ellie has survived by feeding off human blood. In recent months, that blood has been supplied by a middle-aged man named Hortken. Why does he do this? When Ellie first met Horkin, he was living rough and, discovering he was a pedophile, Ellie struck a deal. He allows Horkin look upon his naked body, touch him and even sleep in a bed with him, but with absolutely no sexual contact, all in return for Horkin murdering adults and draining their blood to feed Ellie's addiction. It's one thing to describe that in the novel, it is quite another to have a child actor perform that on screen. Here is Alfredson once more. Well, we we had to to look for the kids. It took nearly a year to find them, and uh, they're easier to work with than uh, grown-up actors. I think the the biggest difference is that the the character Hawkgun, the 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 guy who's uh, delivering blood for for Ely, he he's an outspoken pedophile in the in the book. So. That is a very hard subject to deal with uh, on a film, I think. Uh, you could do that, but uh, then probably the whole film will be about that, uh, that uh, topic. So we chose to leave that out. So that's the biggest difference. Bearing in mind the avalanche of shame that abusers heap upon their victims, and how much of that suffering is in plain sight, but all too often not recognised, Alfredson needed to figure out a way to disguise that grief, but keep it ever-present. To do that, he turned to cinematographer Hoyte van Hoytema. The primary function of any cinematographer is to capture what is happening in front of the lens. But in this case, van Hoytema devised a visual scheme that would conceal almost as much as it revealed. In other words, hide in plain sight. 
Consider the frequency with which von Hoytema puts a long lens on the camera and distances the camera from the event so that it is a neutral observer, dispassionately witnessing the horrors as they unfold for all the world to see. But very few do. Then think of the occasions when our view of events is obscured either through half-open doors, curtained windows or shadowy tunnels. Other times the image is composed in such a way that we are aware of something happening just outside of our vision. All this is best exemplified in the climactic sequence in the swimming pool. Oscar is being held underwater and we are there with him as he struggles to hold his breath. Above him, out of shot, is Ellie, busily administering the work of an avenging angel. Van Hoytema graduated from the Polish Film School in Woj in 1997. And here he is in 2010 at a post-screening Q&A in England hosted by Fuji Film. We had this sort of half-pretentious theory in, in, in which we would say, you know, uh, for Oscar and for Avi, you know, uh, uh, brightness is the, is, is the scary thing because, because, because that means exposure and, and, you know, when you're bullied, you know, it's safety you find by hiding away in, in, in dark corners and by having some sort of an overall soft light where you cannot hide is a much more scary thing. In preparing for the film, Van Hoytema showed Alfredson a lot of paintings by Dutch artist Hans Holbein because, as Van Hoytema pointed out in an interview with American cinematographer, the way Holbein arranged the people in his paintings, the eye lines were very unexpected. They can be, quote, in the bottom of the frame or very far off outside of the frame. Here is Van Hoytema once more at the same post-screening Q&A. I mean, a few of the things that I... Uh like a few of my favorite scenes from the film, they were, they were not pre-planned in, as such as that we, that we had, had a precise storyboard, but you know, we took time in the morning in a way to, to work out the shots. And that's also something when you work with kids, you know, I mean, you can plan and you can make storyboards, but of course you cannot press, uh, you know, a child into the, into the sort of the logistics of a storyboard. So, so in a way, it was very nice. We, we went to the set in the morning and we started to fill out uh, a scene and, and rhythm and so on and and then you know kind of we we try something and you know we, we, we turn the camera left and we let somebody coming in from the left side or the right and in that way I mean we didn't plan so much. Carefully considered as the images are, the film's sound, designed by Jonas Janssen, is just as specific. Right down to a particular modulation when Ellie blinks. But it is Ellie's voice that is even more intriguing. Ellie was dubbed by an older actress, Elif Kalin, because it hinted the child is a lot older than we think. Something similar happened on The Exorcist. There, William Friedkin and his sound designers, Robert Knudsen and Christopher Newman, got veteran actress Mercedes McCambridge to dub the voice of the demon over Linda Blair's voice of Regan O'Neill. Hello, Regan. I'm a friend of your mother's. I'd like to help you. You want to loosen the straps, huh? I'm afraid you might hurt yourself, Reagan. I'm not Reagan. I see. Well, then, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Carroll. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. If you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? That's much too vulgar display of power, Carroll. Where's Reagan? In here with us. The Exorcist is a film that revels in tormenting a teenage girl. By contrast, Let the Right One In treats its young victims with considerable sympathy. While Alfredson unfolds the horrors at a precise measure, and von Hoytema's camera barely moves during that time, it is the score, composed by Johann Sandekvist, 
that proves the film's empathy for the two leads. The music offers a warmth that works as a hopeful counterpoint to the miseries on screen. We can look back to the 1960s to see where that idea came from. When doing the score for The Innocents, Jack Clayton's masterful adaptation of Henry James's novella The Turn of the Screw, composer George Orrick provided a lullaby with lyrics by Paul Dan to contrast the children's spiritual virtue against the corruption of their bodies. And that idea was something Krzysztof Komeda used in the opening credits of Roman Polanski's adaptation of Ira Levin's Rosemary's Baby. Just like Auric and Komeda, Santa Chris's melodies are a superb lesson in scoring because they don't reinforce what we see, but rather convey what Oscar and Ellie feel. Here is Santa Christ in 2011, being interviewed on the Lonihus YouTube channel. I think that maybe music and sound is maybe the thing that uh, really goes straight into your, like into your belly. It doesn't go through your head so much, but, but it really goes straight to your, uh, I mean, your emotions. And uh, therefore it's, it's a very powerful tool. In 2010, Matt Reeves directed an American remake with many scenes replicating almost line for line and shot for shot what Alfredson had already done, Reeves's version nonetheless begins in the middle of the story, with a police officer investigating the discovery of a middle-aged man suffering third-degree acid burns to the head. This decision immediately gives Reeves's version a sense of momentum and tone that Alfredson's version neither had nor indeed required. As a consequence, and despite being well cast, the remake never really comes to grips with Lindqvist's theme or subtext. In the American version, Oscar becomes Owen and Ellie becomes Abby, and they are played respectively by Cody Smith-McPhee and Chloe Grace Moretz. Just so you know, I can't be your friend. Why not? That's just the way it is. So did Let the Right One In bring anything new to the vampire genre? For me, it serves as a highly effective metaphor for the impact sexual assault has on any person, particularly children. For many victims, the violence leaves them in a state of arrested emotion. Valiantly battling to get past a trauma so unspeakable, for centuries, victims were not heard. And that silence confines them to society's shadows. Here is sexual abuse survivor Jenna Quinn addressing TED Talks on May the 16th, 2017. The American Medical Association has labeled child sexual abuse a silent epidemic. And I believe this is because it is truly the silence that kills. It's estimated that two thirds of children will never tell. In silence, shame is allowed to grow. And what's kept in secret has power over us. That's why we cannot heal what we don't reveal on an individual level and as a society. Whereas in real life, many victims grow up to suffer triggers that return them to the emotional state and age of their assault, 
in Lindquist's reinvention of the vampire myth, a vampire never ages because that suspension represents their being trapped in time. For a large portion of the novel, and for three quarters of the film, we are led to believe that Ellie is a girl. Ellie keeps hinting, even declares otherwise, but then we discover that he was castrated, two centuries ago, and has been unable to physically grow beyond the age of 12. His androgynous appearance further underlines the emotional, physical and psychic twilight from which so many victims struggle to escape. And for those reasons alone, Lindquist's novel and Alfredson's film can be regarded as classics. <laughs>